everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I've been thinking a lot about superhero origins lately, and how many of them either revolve around someone having access to technology slightly better than our own, or are the result of workplace accidents. And I was wondering if it's the same way in the animal kingdom. Like, do chimpanzees have a superhero who has, like, two sticks that he uses to eat ants out of anthills? Or, like, maybe, like, a really giant stick? Or a fork? Is a chimpanzee with a fork their version of a superhero? And, like, for bears... Okay, here's what I'm really getting at. If a bear got each of his paws stuck in beehives and then could use those beehive paws to punch salmon out of water and then also it would coat the salmon in honey and also, also, since the bear's paws are in the middle of the beehive, like, directly in the middle. The bees think that the bear's paw is their new queen, so the bees follow the bear's commands. And at first, the bear is, like, just sending out his swarm of bees to, like, steal picnic baskets for him and shit. But then he realizes that with great power comes great responsibility. And they're about to shut down his national park and sell it to oil drillers. So he goes to Washington and starts using his beehive fist to punch corrupt senators right in their stupid corrupt faces. And the headlines are all like, Politicians find themselves in a sticky situation. Which seems inappropriately lighthearted as probably several people died. I forget where I was going with this. I think it started with a question. Oh yeah, do you think four cups of coffee is too much to drink before starting to record a podcast? Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Is Bumblebear a better name than Honey Fist? Bear with me while I read you this synopsis. Synopsis. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 38. December, 1987. Clusters, Part 1. Plotted by Marv Wolfman. Scripted by Roy Thomas and Dan Thomas. Drawed by Eduardo Barreto. Inked by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by Albert T. de Guzman. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Barbara Randall. Teen Titan Roll Call. Raven, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, and Starfire. Infinity Inkers, Obsidian, Jade, Nuclon, Wildcat, and Mr. Bones. Previously in New Teen Titans. An evil CEO with a GNU fetish decided to frame Starfire for murder. To achieve this questionable goal, he concocted a sinister scheme involving costume changes, solar power, and robot duplicates. Then his head evil scientist confidently informed the perfidious plutocrat that there were no such thing as robots in the DC universe. The infernal industrialist was forced to hatch a new sinister scheme that was remarkably similar to the first sinister scheme, but used remote control exoskeletons instead of robots. 
Because as mentioned previously, robots are impossible in the DC Universe. This new robotless scheme worked perfectly and Starfire was arrested. Oh no! Fortunately, Raven and Nightwing were able to do some detective work and clear the incarcerated space princess's name. Hooray! Unfortunately, the sinister CEO who had taken to calling himself Wildebeest managed to elude capture. Complicating matters further for our titular titans, Raven suddenly decided, apropos of very little, that she was madly in love with Nightwing. Circumstantial evidence suggests that the suddenly smitten sorceress subconsciously used her powers of emotional manipulation to ensure that these feelings were reciprocated, and the two avian-themed adventurers had a weird makeout. Unaware of the potentially magic-inspired betrayal, upon her release from prison, a joyous starfire celebrated by also having a weird makeout with her possibly emotionally ensorcelled boyfriend, Nightwing. Raven watched the object of her affection strangely smooch his space girlfriend and thought to herself how sad it was for Starfire that Dick was about to dump her. Gadzooks! Previously in Infinity Inc. The offspring, godchildren, and other protégés of the Golden Age heroes from the Justice Society decided to form their own super team. There were an awful lot of them, and they talked a lot and sometimes did stuff. Occasionally one of them would die, but when they did, they usually, but not always, got better. One of their main bad guys was a super genius named the Ultra-Humanite who had put his brain into the body of a mutant albino gorilla. Gadzooks! How will Dick Grayson extricate himself from his precarious position as the involuntary hypotenuse of a love triangle? How else will recent events from the Titan storyline affect this issue? How will recent storylines from Infinity Inc. affect this issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By taking an unexcused absence from appearing in this comic... They won't, because I don't think Roy and Dan Thomas read those issues. And I hope they won't, because I haven't read those issues. A NASA space shuttle is bopping around in deep space when it runs into a whole mess of little pink squiggly things. Normally, a shuttle wouldn't be out this far, but this isn't really a normally situation. See, a little while ago, the ultra-humanites stole this ship. Then NASA was like, well, fuck that, and programmed the spaceship to fly into the sun and explode. Dang, that's a pretty aggressive loss prevention policy. The only problem was... I guess they must have missed the sun, and the shuttle just went flying off into space. Oops. Anyway, the ultra-humanite was either comatose or taking a snooze or something when his ship hit the squiggly bits, but he woke up when the squiggles crawled up into his brain and started poking around. The squiggles were like, Okay? Pissed off evil genius in a souped-up gorilla body. We can work with that. They used their squiggle powers to turn the spaceship around and head it back to Earth. Uh-oh. Back on Earth, some members of Infinity Inc. have decided to swing by the Titan's giant T-shaped skyscraper for a visit. Let's meet them. Nuclon, a.k.a. Albert Rothstein, is a big strong guy. He's like 7 foot 6 and has a mohawk. Also, his mom was the NASA scientist who apparently wasn't sure where the sun was. Wildcat, a.k.a. Yolanda Montez, dresses up like a cat and punches and kicks people. She has claws and is all flippy and jumpy on account of she has a cat's agility. Obsidian, a.k.a. Todd Rice, has 
shadow-based powers, which are about as nebulous as they sound. He can turn himself into a shadow and has access to a shadow dimension and can take over other people's shadows and do some other stuff that doesn't make a ton of sense. Oh, and he can fly too, because why not? Jade, aka Jenny Lynn Hayden, is Obsidian's twin sister. She has Green Lantern-type powers where she can make solid objects out of green light. Also, she can boss plants around, and fly, and she's green. Mr. Bones is a skeleton man. He dresses like a pirate flag, talks in rhymes, and anybody that he touches dies instantly. Also, he's very strong. Anyway, Beast Boy shows the gang around the Titan Tower and creepily hits on Jade, partly because they're both green, but mostly because he's a creep. He introduces them to the rest of the Titans, except for Dick and Jericho, who are busy not appearing in this issue. Nuclon explains that the rest of the members of Infinity Inc. couldn't make it because one of them, a guy named Silver Scarab, died and there was a funeral and stuff. I guess either these five weren't crazy about Silver Scarab, or they figured he'd probably stop being dead soon, which, in their defense, he would. Or maybe they attended Donna Troy's grief counseling workshop because they thought this was a fine time to do a little sightseeing. They all head to the weight room for some exercise shenanigans. The Infinitor show off by tossing the Titans' high-tech barbells around while making some puns. Everyone seems to be having a pretty good time until Raven puts a damper on the festivities by grabbing her forehead and exclaiming, Oh no! My mystical nonsense powers are telling me that someone out there is confused and really pissed off! Wow. Someone in New York City is upset? That does sound suspicious. Raven changes into her magic shadow bird form and pops out to investigate. When Obsidian sees her transform, he's like, She turns into a giant shadow? I turn into a giant shadow! I'm gonna go be friends with her. He changes into his shadow form and flies off in pursuit of the Azerathian Enchanter. Todd follows Raven as she tracks the source of the bad vibes to a NASA space shuttle that has just crashed into the East River. Uh-oh. The odds probably aren't great that that's a different shuttle than the one from the opening, are they? Nope, they sure aren't. When the two intangible adventurers make their way into the submerged spaceship, they are surprised to encounter a familiar-looking albino ape. Is it the hypnotic albino baboon that Beast Boy used to change into back in his crime circus days? It is not. It's the ultra-humanite. Todd tries to warn Raven that the humanite is a total asshole, but it doesn't do a ton of good. Raven reaches out to try to siphon off some of the simian supervillain's rage, but he punches her in the shoulder. And not like in a, ha you, kind of way. More like a, mutant albino ape in a murderous rage kind of way. Ouch. Todd tries to elude the aggressive anthropoid by using his nebulous shadow powers, but to little avail. Apparently during his space sojourn, the ultra-humanite picked up some telekinetic powers from those little pink squiggles. He uses this new ability to knock Obsidian unconscious, leaving his now-tangible form materialized with his head outside of the shuttle, drowning in the river water. It seems like materializing like that should probably have decapitated him, but I guess either his powers have some kind of a failsafe to prevent that sort of thing, or else this is just his lucky day. I mean, apart from the whole drowning in the East River thing. Raven quickly teleports Todd to the shore so that she can use her powers to heal him. 
enraged even further by this hasty departure, the ultra-humanite uses his pink squiggle-induced mental powers to transform the spaceship into a flying raft and zooms off in pursuit of the escaping heroes. Fortunately, the time it took him to turn his vehicle into a transformer gave the rest of the heroes a chance to catch up to their goth-powered counterparts. Soon after taking to the skies, the Ultra-Humanite is intercepted by the combined forces of the Teen Titans and Infinity Inc. Hooray! Or maybe not so hooray. Because the new and improved Humanite and his little pink squiggle stowaways use an impressive array of nonsense powers to beat the absolute shit out of both super teams, and then fly off into the city. Well, shit. While their comrades-in-arms are getting their costumed keisters kicked, Obsidian and Raven are recovering on the riverbank. Todd is like, Hey, thanks for saving my life. Were you poking around in my soul when you did that? Because I felt like I kinda saw your soul in there for a second. Raven's like, Yes, Todd, that is how my powers work. Today, anyway. I felt all of your feelings and saw your whole emotional history. Todd is like, Well, it was kind of nice. Raven is like, no, it wasn't. It was wrong. What happened in your soul was messed up. Now, let's never talk about it again. Uh, okay. Todd is like, uh, okay. I feel you, Todd. After this confusing heart-to-heart, -heart, the two heroes gather their teammates' unconscious bodies and drag them up to the Titan Tower. After setting the slumbering superheroes up on some cots so that they can take a nice, rejuvenative, post-getting-their-asses-kicked nap, Obsidian and Raven head into the city to try to track down the Ultra-Humanite. Turns out, he's not that hard to find. See, upon arriving downtown, the Ultra-Humanite headed for the top of the nearest skyscraper. From that lofty vantage point, the ape-bodied asshole bellowed to the heavens like he was Hugh Jackman in one of those four scenes in Wolverine Origins where he did that. This act of dramatic cliché signaled a legion of those pink scribbles he encountered in the opening scenes of the book to funnel down from the sky and swarm around him until they formed a vaguely humanoid shape about a thousand feet tall with the ultra-humanite at its core. Once this Voltronification process was complete, this newly formed being started Godzilla-ing around the city. Everything they encountered, the pink space squiggles swarmed over and devoured like omnivorous extraterrestrial termites, adding mass and energy to their already gargantuan form. So what I'm saying is he wasn't exactly difficult for Obsidian and Raven to find. The perplexingly powered pair of protagonists roll up on the Ultra-Humanite, who now looks like a hundred-story Michelin man stuffed with angry pink cauliflower. And Raven is like, I think I can take him. She assumes the form of her avian astral avatar. Her plan is to dive into the center of the writhing mass of pink nonsense, pluck out the Ultra-Humanite, and lay some sort of mystical whammy on the evil furball. Once she incapacitates their host, she figures the pink doodles will fuck off back to space. It's a good plan. She makes it within about four feet of the amorphous makeshift kaiju before it blasts her with enough cosmic energy to flash fry a megalodon. Obsidian catches her out of the air as she tumbles to the ground, unconscious. After depositing her safely on the ground, the shadow-mongering Infinitor is like, That looks like it went pretty well. Think I'll give it a try. Damn it, Todd! 
his attack meets with similar results. Yeah, go figure. The two heroes are nursing their respective wounds when they hear cries of distress coming from a nearby tenement. The swarm of colorful space gobbledygook has enveloped the structure and is in the process of devouring both the building and the child and pregnant mother who dwell within it. Raven manages to retrieve the small family just before the building collapses. She absorbs as much pain as she can from the child, but is worried that the mom's pregnancy might be in danger if they try to move them. She sends Todd back to the Titan Tower to see if he can try to wake up some reinforcements. Obsidian flies as fast as he can. When he arrives at his destination, he finds that his fellow Infinitors and their Titanic allies are just waking up, but still groggy from their recent ass-whooping. He fills them in on as much of the situation as he can, and together the motley assortment of costumed crime fighters rushes towards the city, intent on rescuing their beleaguered bird-themed buddy and doing their best to beat up a skyscraper-sized, humanoid-shaped, ravenous swarm of extraterrestrial pink ridiculousness and its mad scientist albino gorilla host. Good luck, guys. To be continued. Hey. Do you think maybe the reason the ultra-humanite is so aggressive is because being an albino gorilla, he's both a silver back and a silver front? Nah, you're right, he's probably just an asshole. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Been watching a lot of Golden Girls lately, so that's been nice. Oh, yeah, that sounds pleasant. It, it is pleasant. I've got a birthday coming up, and I think I'm having like a reverse midlife crisis where I don't want to rewind my life back to when I was younger. I want to just skip it ahead to when I'm way older. And uh, I think the Golden Girls has been playing into that. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I got a head start on my old age as a young man as well. Good. So far, so good. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, my first thought was, thank God it wasn't the last comic book. <laughs> Not the Defenders, but the uh, last issue of the Teen Titans. Yeah, I think it does definitely benefit from that comparison. Yeah. Other than that, it was frankly a little confusing. I don't know how it was set up where if the writing team from Infinity Inc. kind of took over, but mm -hmm. the prose was really different. And like I had to read the exposition boxes, like in a few cases, several times to get the gist of what was going on. Yeah, I think that's kind of a Roy Thomas hallmark. We have covered a few Roy Thomas comics on this show, but not for quite some time. He actually did the very first three Defenders comics back when they were in Marvel Feature. And then I talked about him a fair amount when I had Sarah Century as a guest a little while ago. We looked at some really early Valkyrie appearances for that episode. But we haven't read a ton of Roy Thomas stuff. He has a deep, deep body of work, both at Marvel and DC. At one point, he was kind of the heir apparent to Stan Lee, and he took over the editor-in-chief job at one point and most of Stan Lee's writing duties in the early 70s. At this point, he was co-writing most of his work with his wife, Dan Thomas, 
And that is the case with this issue. I haven't read much of her solo work, but I think their writing style, from what I've gleaned from interviews, is that she would typically do the first draft of a comic, and then he would go through and rewrite it. And it seems like maybe that just gives him the opportunity to be even more Roy Thomas than he would have otherwise been. Because, mm. yeah, it is some very, very purple prose that it's very nicely written, but it seems kind of overwritten. and. Given how little it seems like actually happens in this comic, it is very dense in terms of verbiage. And I think that is very typical of Roy Thomas's work. Mm -hmm. I would also like to say that I'm disappointed that there were no snacks of any sort in the comic because it's called Clusters Part One. <laughs> and I don't know, that just maybe I'm hungry or something, but I was like, oh, what kind of clusters is it? And I guess they mean clusters of what did he call them uncountable uncountables so i think generally the phrase he uses to describe them is some things but Corey, it's funny i had the same thought about clusters i think partly because that was my favorite cereal for a little while but yeah i was like cosmic clusters those sound delicious right and also i would maybe argue with you that there are no snacks depicted because when i saw the ultra-humanite in his biggin form, it mostly looked to me like a man wearing a clear plastic bag filled with pink popcorn. <laughs> so, you know, delicious. Sure. What? I, mean, I don't know. It would be not spicy, probably a sweetened popcorn of some sort. Oh, gosh. I would like it if it was a combination. I like the sweet and spicy together. So maybe if it was like a combination of cayenne and cinnamon sugar. Hmm. I like, yeah, sriracha and honey. Yeah. Now we're talking. All right. All right. This comic's getting better. <laughs> yeah. It's a delicious supervillain. <laughs> I liked the art. I liked the art too. And I think it worked as well as it could with the writing. I don't want to go too much into bashing Roy Thomas's writing because I think he is a good writer in a lot of ways. He is not always to my taste, especially with his superhero stuff, but I love his run on Conan the Barbarian, and I think the really flowery dialogue works really well if you are in a more minimalist, brutal setting like a sword and sorcery thing. And part of what works in this comic book, I think, is that the layout of the book is really smart in making space for the captions, which are as densely packed as they are. And there is also just so much detail in the larger pictures that you can kind of just get lost in these images and let the writing just wash over you. Yeah, it also helps if you read in your, in your mind's voice, if that's a way to say it, the exposition with a Rod Serling kind of voice. Ooh, do you want to give me an example of it? Oh, you know that I am not good at <laughs> accents or voices. Like, in my head, I hear it. As one of America's space shuttles floats through the dark, unexplored reaches of deep space. I think that's a decent Serling. Yeah? I have found that one of the tricks to me in doing a Rod Serling impression is that early on in Rod Serling's life, he had really messed up front teeth. And so... 
he developed a way of talking in which he would keep his top lip pulled down over his front teeth. And I feel like if you keep that in mind, then it helps with your pronunciation. Now, after all the long, lonely months, the shuttlecraft approaches something. Something nebulous in outline, shifting in the cosmic winds as it snakes across the void. Something ill-defined in contour, like melted ice cream running across a mahogany table. Something that ripples with awareness as the spacecraft moves ever nearer. Nice. I was hoping that you would get the melted ice cream running across <laughs> the mahogany table because I read that a few times and I was like, okay, it's a very visual metaphor, but it has nothing to do <laughs> with what's going on here. Yeah, it's both a kind of obtuse metaphor in that I don't know how what you are describing is like that in any way. It's very difficult to visualize that, especially when we are looking at a picture in a panel of a comic book that is what you're supposed to be describing, and it looks nothing like that. And also, it's not like that's a necessarily easily relatable phenomena. Like, oh, you know, we've all had melted ice cream. <laughs> drip over a mahogany table. It makes me wonder if maybe that was just like what was happening when Roy Thomas was glancing around the room. Like if he's Kaiser <laughs> so saying that metaphor. <laughs> Kobayashi. Yeah, I'm sure he was. But yeah, I think that is a prime example of, yes, you're right, both the like Rod Serling-esque quality to the narration and Roy Thomas's propensity for using three or four metaphors where really one would do. Mm -hmm. That being said, as you said, this comic book definitely did benefit from its comparison to the last New Teen Titans issue we read. It seems to have, I believe, dropped the Raven being in love with Dick all of the sudden for no particular reason, at least in as much as Dick doesn't appear in this issue and no reference to it is made. I don't think it's really unclear what's happening with Obsidian and Raven when she sees something in him or they see something in each other. That really confused me. And I was like, wait, is she's got a tear in her eye. Is she like, wait, what's going on? I was going to ask you about that. So, yeah, first of all, like Dick was just like, I can't deal with this. I'm out. Mm -hmm. And like went to go whatever he does yeah maybe him and jericho are off fishing or something because neither one of them is in this issue and no reference to the fact that they're not in this issue is made i like that i'm gonna imagine them both wearing those like uh i don't know what those hats are called but like the hats that you imagine yeah the bucket hat with all the extra hooks sticking out of it yeah yeah so they're both wearing those just like quietly drinking beer <laughs> i bet jericho has some like bespoke whittled fly hooks that he got at ren fair oh you know it yeah, he probably makes them. Mm. Also, he's probably got like a flagon of meat or something instead of beer. Oh, I like that kind of better than what's going on here. But okay, so yeah, I was going to ask you about that scene with Obsidian and Raven. So near as I can tell, either she saw something either tragic or horrible that he has done or been involved with, or they had some weird like psychic hookup when she was in his mind. Yeah, it's really not clear what is being implied there. It's one of those, I think. Um, let's take a look at what exactly we do see. Uh, he passes out, she rescues him with her druid powers. When she does that, she does a weird peekaboo thing by covering up his eyes. And then when he comes to, he says, I, I felt you, didn't I? 
inside my mind, soothing, healing. She's like, that's my power. He's like, it's a nice power. And somehow, I don't think I'd care if you never went away. So it's like, okay, that's nice. I guess they formed a connection. And then later on, she's like, I sensed loneliness and goodness, even darkness within you. It kept me there more than I wanted. I saw your feelings for your shattered family and your sister Jade for a young woman named Marcy. And he says, Raven, I... And then she says, it's wrong what we saw. We must never speak of it again. So yeah, I think maybe they had some kind of a psychic hookup that was maybe unintentional, but I don't know. And I hope that's what it's implying. Because otherwise, she saw something in him and her response is, uh, that is fucked up, no thank you, and it makes her cry. Mm -hmm. It's especially unsettling when you read it in a modern context with the knowledge that, I think this is only within the last decade, but Obsidian has come out of the closet as one of the DC Universe's very few, canonically, gay characters. Hmm. So it's hard not to read into that interaction that way, and I don't think that's what is intended, because this would have predated that by at least 20 years, I think. But it's difficult not to see it in that light, or that he's saying something about either his relationship with his sister or with this woman, Marcy, that is just fucked up and she doesn't want to get into. It just mm -hmm. comes off as very judgy in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I didn't know his character development with his sexuality, so I didn't read that at all into it. And it was one of the two. Either she saw something super gross, or they did something they, weren't, they felt like they weren't supposed to. Right. And I think that's the way that most readers would have read that at the time. And I'm glad to hear that that's the way that you read it. Because when I first read it, I was like, is Raven being weirdly homophobic? That doesn't seem to be her previous character, but also, I don't know if that's Roy Thomas's take on her character, because she's not acting the way she was in the last issue, certainly. She's acting much more like old Raven in this than she is the uh, manic pixie druid girl that she has been the past couple of issues. So, I don't know. Maybe Todd's feelings were just really intense, and Roy Thomas didn't know that now she likes to experience the intense emotions of rolling around in the feelings of the theater district like a dog who found a dead bird on the beach. Maybe she's just trying to figure out what he meant by, and somehow I don't think I'd care if you never went away. Like, that's... Is that a thing people say? No, that is a weird double negative of a come on. <laughs> I wouldn't be happy if I never saw you again. Like, it doesn't... <laughs> it's so confusing. Yeah, it's logistically confusing, but also it's both very casual and very intense in a weird way. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of a shitty Aerosmith lyric that always bothered me. It's from the song Ragdoll, where he says, baby, won't you do me like you never before? And that's after he says, I don't mind. Come on up and see me. So even after you untangle his little double negative word puzzle, it's like, huh. That's a big ask, and I feel like you should be asking it in a way that makes it more clear that this is a very large favor. Or it just that includes all the words. That too. So, speaking of words, there was in that exchange a turn of phrase that I hope was just like a 
we didn't think this through, but he says, guess I might as well turn on the blackface again. Yeah. I mean, literally, he is putting a black mask over his face. Pretty sure they're not implying he's going to do some kind of a minstrel show. But there's a lot about 1987 I don't know about. And while I'm pretty sure that blackface was certainly less acceptable then than it was in its heyday, it also wasn't as stigmatized as it is now. So I guess that's a few years before Ted Danson got in a lot of trouble for doing blackface. But yeah, that also definitely took me aback when I read it. Yeah, I don't think it was intended to be anything weird, but it's just hearing that word still is powerful enough that you're just like, huh. Yeah, it's, it's jarring and it takes you out of it for a second. I had the same reaction to it. So we've talked a little bit about Obsidian. How familiar are you with him and the rest of Infinity Inc.? I wasn't, as far as I can remember, at all familiar with them. I had to go kind of look them up after I read this. I didn't want to do that beforehand because I wanted that experience of like, you know, I'm a kid who picked this up at the newsstand. And what would that be like? Yeah, so Infinity Inc. makes, I think, an interesting counterpart for the Titans to play off of. Because the Titans are, at least in their origin, the protégés of the Silver Age superheroes in the Justice League. And Infinity Inc. is the protégés or children or grandchildren or godchildren of the Golden Age superheroes in the Justice Society, with a few exceptions. They are also an immense team. We see five of them in this issue. At this point, I believe they had a roster of 12 or 13 heroes, which is kind of another hallmark of Roy and Dan Thomas's work in this era. It's something that came up in the All-Star Squadron a bunch. Let's just talk about the characters that we meet in this and get your impressions on them. Sure. Wildcat. Any thoughts on her? So Hellcat... Ha- oh, sorry. So... <laughs> I don't know. It's like superhero who did a semester abroad and has a little bit of a grasp of Spanish, but it's not great. I know she's supposed to be a, a Latinx character, at least by her name. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know there wasn't Google Translate back then, but I think it was dictionary translated. I definitely got that impression as well, where I think it's a improvement perhaps if only a slight one, over phonetically spelling out her accent. But the route that they decided to go instead was, every sixth or seventh word, let's make it in Spanish devoid of context. Yeah, and I, I don't know, maybe there's colloquialisms I'm missing or something, but like there's a scene where they, they put like a subtitle translation. It's like when um, Nuclon throws her this heavyweight and says, heads up, wildcat, and she says, orale, ahí, vengo, which is supposed to be like, okay, here I come. But it's, I don't know, in my understanding, which is not perfect of Spanish, it's more like, hey, there I come. Gotcha. Not here I come, which I read it a few times. and I was like, maybe they say that somewhere that way. But yeah, so that is Wildcat. She is Yolanda Montez, and she is the goddaughter of the original Wildcat, who was a boxing champion named Ted Grant. She doesn't get a huge run, and I think they had bigger designs on her as a character initially. She first, I think, showed up in Crisis on Infinite Earths and then made it over into Infinity Inc. I might have the timing on that a little bit off. But she was a more recent addition to 
Infinity Inc. She wasn't one of the original members. And she didn't end up sticking around all that long. And I don't know all that much about her, but she seems fine, I guess, if confusingly written. What did you think of Nuclon? There wasn't a huge amount to go on. Just mostly I'm like, I don't get why a jock would have a mohawk. I think that's fair. He definitely comes off as a jock and he definitely has a mohawk. He has a punk aesthetic, but is one of the more kind of vanilla characters that you come across in the book. Way down the line, he changes his name to Adam Smasher. And a little bit after that, gets kind of rewritten as an anti-hero bent on vengeance. But that's like a couple decades out at this point. His backstory is that his grandfather was a minor supervillain who was kind of coerced into supervillainness, Cyclotron, who fought the Golden Age, the Atom. The Golden Age, the Atom, was initially just a guy who was short but strong, couldn't like shrink down the way the Silver Age Atom could. And eventually he got some minor super strength after being exposed to radiation from fighting supervillains like Cyclotron. Because, you know, he was named the Atom, so he literally had to have atomic powers affect him in some way. Just like Hellcat, because she is named Hellcat, had to be possessed by a demon. Be careful when you pick out your superhero name, is what I'm saying. Nuclon, whose name is uh, Albert Rothstein, he ended up inheriting his grandfather's powers, and basically, he is seven foot six, and he can get bigger, and he's real strong. That's his deal. Mm. Okay, yeah, he seemed tall. Yeah, he's pretty tall. And his mom is a NASA scientist who apparently tried to throw the Ultra Humanite into the sun, which, good for her, bummer it didn't work out. I'm so glad they explained that later, because I was just like, why the heck would NASA put this giant ape dude on a space shuttle and fly him to space and bring him home? It seemed like a weird choice. Yeah, when I was first reading it, until it got to that little minor sub-explanation, I was like, so NASA just, instead of putting him in jail, they just shot him into space and were like, your problem now, space, bye. Or it was like a win-win, you know? They were like, well, we were going to send these ants, but we can send this prisoner. A, we don't have to deal with him. B, we can experiment on him when he's home. Maybe. We'll talk more about the ultra-humanite in a minute. But for Nuclon, pretty much, he's tall, he's strong. Presumably, he's a Pointer Sisters fan who is still burning doing that Nuclon dance. Obsidian, we talked about a little bit. He controls shadows. He is one of two characters that we meet in this who is the child of the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott. He can move through shadows. His mother is the supervillainous Thorn, who can make plants do stuff. And he apparently, I haven't read a ton of these stories, I've read some of them, but he also inherited schizophrenia from his mother, and so Todd goes through some pretty harsh shit later on. He was also abused pretty badly as a child. He grew up in foster care, as did his sister Jade, or Jenny. And he's a complicated character. He's gone back and forth between hero and villain a couple of times, and I get the impression he hasn't always been written great. Mm. Jade. Any thoughts on her? Uh, very Green Lantern-y, so it's interesting to hear that connection. 
Yeah, she inherited her dad's Green Lantern powers genetically, which is kind of weird because he got his powers from a ring, but since it's the Golden Age Green Lantern, he got his powers from a magic ring rather than a science ring. So, I don't know, magic. She can also make plants do stuff like her mom could. She's neat. I like her fine. She zinged Beast Boy pretty good, so I was happy about that. Yeah, I like her as a character, but she doesn't do a ton in this issue other than, as you mentioned, zing Beast Boy pretty good. And that leaves us with Mr. Bones. Thoughts on Mr. Bones? I can't tell if he's fun or just an asshole. I think it's a combination of the two. If you wanted to play, you should have stayed in L.A. That's one of his lines. Yeah. I think the fact that the Infinitors who did stay in L.A. are attending a funeral kind of tips that line over to the asshole side of the equation, or at the very least means that he has a somewhat unusual definition of the word play. Also, it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that he was talking in rhyme in this. (laughs) Like, I probably should have caught that right away, but I was just like, oh, he's talking weird. The first couple of times he said stuff, and then when he started, like, forcing meter and working the words nay into stuff, I was like, oh, okay, either he's being old-timey, or I guess he's talking in rhyme. His backstory is fucking berserk. Hmm. So, he was raised by a mad scientist gynecologist named Dr. Love. Oh, no. Who went around injecting pregnant women with mutagenic goo that made them have mutant babies who he then kidnapped and raised in isolation without ever letting them outside. Oh my gosh. Mr. Bones is one of those kids. They grew up after their dad seemingly died, but not really. They grew up and found out about their origin and decided to be a team of supervillains called Helix which is a decent name for a group of superheroes that have shit done to their DNA, I guess. Yeah, GMO posse. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bones deal is that, you know how it looks like he's a skeleton? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because his skin and organs are invisible, but he does have them. Also, he emits a cyanide touch, which means that Everything and everyone that he touches is instantly poisoned and dies. Oh, that is the worst power. Yeah. But to balance that out, he's also very strong. I, I, if we were doing a Beholder Be Gone, that (laughs) doesn't even take a second to think about. What a bummer. Yeah, it's not great. Also, his brother ate his leg. (laughs) His brother's not sensitive to cyanide? Oh, yeah, it turns out he is. He uh, didn't work out so good for him. Uh, his brother was basically a street shark, I think it looked like, named Carcharo, who is incidentally Wildcat's cousin. And yeah, he ate his brother's leg and died. Oh, my God. His foster brother. He has two legs, though. Yeah, he has a prosthetic leg now. Oh, okay. Because the government decided he was a bad influence on the other supervillains, so he had to go live with Infinity Inc., and now he's a hero. Um. Yeah. Okay. That's, <laughs> so, well, that's encouraging, I guess. That sounds more like rehabilitation or reform than just warehousing or punishment. Sure. 
I think part of why I didn't recognize that he was talking in rhyme is partly just because I think I just overdosed on words and they stopped having meaning to me while I was reading this. But also because I am somewhat familiar with later iterations of the character when he just wears a suit and he also smokes a lot because why the hell not if your body's already emitting cyanide Hmm. and uh, he doesn't talk in rhyme anymore. So I guess that was just a phase he was going through. The rhymes aren't good. No, no, they are not. Hey, but live here. Mr. Bone says nay. I mean, I, I know he says say in the bubble above it, but it's just, it's hard to connect. It is. And also, uh, I think maybe my favorite is when Donna is telling them to go attack the ultra humanite at the top of the tower. Wonder Girl's feeding us great gobs of jive. They'll have him hoisted for we even arrive. That was so confusing. Great gobs of jive. <laughs> oh. Maybe you need to write that down in the Battle of the Band Names category. (laughs) Oh. There are, as I said, I think at this point, about eight other characters in Infinity, Inc. We have met two of them very briefly in a previous issue. In that one issue where Fran had to recruit a League of Substitute Teen Titans out of their Rolodex to come rescue them, and then they got distracted and wandered off. Dr. Midnight and Skyman were among them, so we met them very briefly. But we're going to have to follow this issue up with Infinity Inc. number 45, and I'm curious as to which other team members we'll meet in that. Because apparently they're down at least one, because the rest of the team can't show up here because they're busy at a funeral. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about that or comment on it, that Donna uncharacteristically offers them condolences for their fallen comrade Silver Scarab, but nobody seems to give a shit. Well, cemeteries in comic book universes seem to have kind of a revolving door policy. But you're right, and it's also weird, I think maybe they're just trying to be polite about Donna's faux pas and aren't quite sure how to react to it, because she interrupts what he is saying about the funeral to offer her condolences. And it's it's not like they're super sincere condolences either. They're like, yeah, well, you know, we wish more of us could be here, but the rest of the team is back at a funeral for... And then she's like, oh, that's right. One of your team members died. Sorry about that. Hey, Beast Boy, will you show them around the place? She also says, I thought you were a bigger group. Like, isn't that a fucked up thing to say right after one of your members dies? Yeah, no kidding. Well, we used to be at least one bigger. Yeah. Aye. So the villain in this book is the ultra-humanite. Thoughts on him? Um, you know, yeah, still don't know why. Well, I mean, I guess we do know why. He was on that space shuttle. They wanted to fly him into the sun and blow him up. Right. Well, he tried to steal the space shuttle, and then they redirected it to fling him into the sun. And I guess he, like, managed to make, maybe re-reprogram it so that he instead got stuck in a delicious bowl of space clusters. Yeah, okay. So, about those space clusters and his relationship to the um, Infinitors, is that how you call them? Yeah, I think that's how they refer to themselves. So, 
when he gets subsumed by slash absorbs these delicious space clusters, the exposition says, they share this being's memories as man, as woman, as mutant ape. They share his passions, his knowledge, his hatreds, and they show the infiniters. Mm-hmm. So was he a man and a woman and an ape, and then they all fought with Infinity Inc.? Or what's the story there? Yeah, kind of. So Ultra Humanite is actually DC Comics' first supervillain. He initially showed up way back in 1939. He was a bald mad scientist in a wheelchair who fought Superman. The idea was to make him the opposite of Superman in every way. So he was physically weak and super smart and super evil. And he was going to be the foil to Superman. In one of his relatively early adventures, he kidnapped the movie star Dolores Winters and scooped out his brain and put it in her body. And then he lived as Dolores Winters and did super crimes as her for a while. And then eventually he was like, nah, you know what's better than supermodel actress? Mutant albino gorilla. Mm. So he got his hands on a mutant albino gorilla and popped his brain into that. I think his only superpowers are that he is as strong as a mutant albino gorilla. I don't believe albino gorillas have the same mind control properties as albino baboons. So missed opportunity there. He stopped showing up in Superman pretty early, and basically his role as Superman's arch-villain got taken over by Lex Luthor. But as he was kicking around, he got brought back in the Silver Age, because when they brought back the Golden Age heroes and set up the premise that they lived on Earth 2, they needed some supervillains for the heroes to fight with, and they were like, oh, here's a Golden Age supervillain. Part of the idea behind Infinity Inc. is that they started off, I think, being on Earth 2, and so he ended up fighting them a bunch. So he's got a lot of backstory with those guys and with all of the Golden Age heroes. It would have been useful to know all that. That was a very confusing scene, but uh, thanks for explaining it. Yeah, no problem. I don't think he has any superpowers other than albino gorilla powers, but he is super duper intelligent. So much like Reed Richards, superpower is his stretchiness, but his real superpower is that he can invent types of shit. Uh, kind of the same deal with the Ultra Humanite. He is a real big deal top tier supervillain, even if he hasn't always been treated like that. Hmm, okay. So I guess this will come up later, but did he invent his cummerbund suspender open loincloth outfit? <laughs> well, I called them his bondage mini overalls, but I'm guessing he did. Okay, we'll get to that later. It's a, it looks like it's very comfortable for a warm climate, but... Kind of? Uh, seems impractical. I mean, just on your nether regions. Okay, yeah, nice to have the breeze there. I mean, especially if you're in space. Wait, no, it's cold in no, space. No, no. In fact, it's cold as hell, if I'm remembering correctly. It's not the kind of place you want to raise your kids. No, which, which is weird, because it does look like his outfit would, you know, not constrain that region, which might promote fertility. Um, he really <laughs> needs to listen to that song. <laughs> Elton John could teach ultra-humanite so much. What a supervillain team-up that would be. 
Oh my goodness, whose costume would be more outrageous? A question for the ages. So yeah, the, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with the Bola clusters that he flies into. Uh, it seems like they're using him to further some agenda of their own for planet conquering, probably something along those lines. It's unclear whether they are the ones who are responsible for transforming the space shuttle into a flying raft slash whatever, or if that is the ultra-humanite's own machinations. I think probably a combination of the two, but neat trick. Yeah, he seems to have that kind of deus ex power where he can do whatever. Yeah, and there you have the Dramatis Persona, and honestly, like I said, for as densely packed with words and pictures and beautiful details as it was, seems like not a ton happened in this issue. Yeah, I actually got to the end and you know how sometimes you have that feeling when like you get to the end and you're like, oh good, I can I can wrap up my notes. <laughs> uh this time I got to the end and I was like, wait, what? Well, but nothing happened. Yeah. I mean so many things happened, but nothing happened. Yeah. It was kind of unsatisfying too it reminded me of uh dorothy parker's analysis of hatred where it's uh filling but not nourishing ah if only we could all be so articulate she is great (laughs) yeah but that was kind of my feeling on this comic book that being said the art was absolutely beautiful we have romeo tangal back as an inker and i feel kind of bad saying it but For the second time in as many issues, we see what a difference it makes replacing Pablo Marcos with a better inker. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because we saw it in the Defenders in the last issue with Joe Sinnott stepping up after taking over for Pablo Marcos. And now we see the return of Romeo Tangal onto the new Teen Titans. And he and Eduardo Barreto work so well together. I think it seems like more of a harsh diss than I intended as, because really, when you get down to it, Joe Sinnott and Romeo Tangal are two of my favorite inkers ever. And in this issue, the detail that goes on in the machinery, in the backgrounds, and frankly, the attention to detail in drawing all of those delicious little clusters all over everything, so much pink popcorn in so many panels was really, really impressive to me. Yeah, especially the machinery and like the biomechanical almost elements to like all those cables that are entangling the ultra-humanite on the shuttle. Like it was a reminiscent of uh, Perez's work. It was really nice to see that. It absolutely was. And it also makes you realize how much Romeo Tangal's work was a part of that George Perez work. It's really stunning. And it also combines really well with one of the things that, as I said, Eduardo Barreto does really well, which is innovative layouts that really enhance the storytelling by drawing your attention without distracting you from the story. You see a lot of that in this issue, and it's real purdy. It sure is. Yeah, there's a really great sense of movement throughout these panels. Like It just sort of pulls you along. I think that's one of the reasons why I felt like I got to the end so much faster than I normally do when I'm taking notes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Although the combination, I must say, of that level of detail with the perhaps over-exuberant prose of Roy Thomas was you, you get to the end and you're a little bit exhausted, but also not a ton has happened, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, it was a workout. 
quick question. So I know we don't do sound effects, but there's one that made me wonder if Ultra Humanite was channeling an old enemy of the Titans on page 8 when he uses his abilities to send Obsidian outside of the submerged space shuttle. We see an explosion where it says, Brom! Oh! You think he maybe summoned our old buddy Brom Stick, a.k.a. Mr. Twister? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't see any pigeon feathers, but you never know. <laughs> I think they're implied. <laughs> that scene when the humanite is flying off. And he's like, nothing can stop me, even if I don't remember what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, it just kind of reminded me of Dad. (laughs) (laughs) I totally get that. (laughs) I can see him almost literally saying that. It it sounds almost like his diction. Uh Uh-huh. No one, nothing on this planet can stop me from performing my sacred mission, even if, even if I cannot quite remember what it is. Well, Corey, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's do it. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Well, we spent some time talking about the large cast of characters, so why don't we dive into sartorially speaking? Okay. Which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? I guess we've already done justice to Ultra Humanite's outfit, but it is a weird choice. It is. You know what it reminds me of? Hmm. Do you remember when we covered the original Guardians of the Galaxy and the Defenders? How there was the one guy from Jupiter who was wearing McDonald's branded bondage gear? Oh, man. I can't visualize it, but it sounds... Super familiar. It was like Charlie 47 or something. Uh huh. I got the number wrong. But his outfit is very similar to the Ultra Humanites, both in that it is apparently bondage gear and that it is bright yellow and bright red. So, yeah, kind of McDonald's branded bondage wear that has like, <laughs> what's the opposite of culottes? Because it's like a, it looks like shorts, but it's actually a skirt. Is that the opposite of culottes? Uh, those are pants that are baggy, so they look like a skirt, but they don't go all the way down to your ankles. Wait, do most skirts go all the way down to your ankles? Well, I mean... <laughs> are you conflating capri pants and culottes? I thought culottes were like... I think they're like Like, shorts. like chaps, but with an ass... <laughs> No, that's pants, Corey. I think culottes are... Let's, let's, let's segue this into our popular segment. What are culottes? Corey and Hub on fashion. <laughs> it is bizarre that we have a regular segment where we discuss fashion. I don't know what half the words are, man. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, so my understanding of culottes are that they look like a skirt but are actually shorts yeah i thought they were like that but like a long skirt maybe i don't think they're long i think normally like you would use them to play tennis or something oh really i don't know there's clearly a lot about culottes we don't understand yeah you guys will have to tune in next week (laughs) when we unwrap that mystery so 
In summation, culottes are a wish that your heart makes. And the Ultra Humanite is wearing some weird shit. Yeah, he is. And just to note on him that this cover is really misleading because I totally thought he was going to have Aqualad powers. He does have those concentric circles coming out of his head that normally mean someone is communicating with fishes. That's how I read them. Yeah, I think maybe the delicious space cereal that he encountered gave him some telepathic powers, but not necessarily the ones that let him talk to his finny friends. I just, I, I can't stop thinking about how you would flavor it, what this pink popcorn would taste like. Any more thoughts? Um, achiote, like a conchinita pibil, like that, that pork with the achiote that makes it anato, like Ooh. the red pork. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe like those, uh, the, the Chinese hot dogs. Those are pink. Those are pretty tasty. Mm. Oh, this podcast doesn't work out. <laughs> just start making flavored popcorn. Yeah, I don't know that people would buy that popcorn, especially because I think we might forget and make it a cereal. And I don't necessarily want to eat Chinese hot dog flavored cereal. Yeah, fair. Any other outfits? I don't really get Nuclon's headband. I guess it's just there for show, like you like to have like the frilly ends flying behind you. I think that's more standard 80s gear. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like combination aerobicizing and Rambo. Mm-hmm. There is a weird panel that, like, his headband's really prominent, but I was trying to read the guy's expression, and I can't quite figure it out. It's on page four. Oh, I believe his expression in that panel is surreptitiously looking at Jade's boob, which is peeking around a corner. Yeah, so I was like, either he's ogling side boob, or it's that sort of, like, grimace slash smile that you make when somebody that you have to be around or work with says something that makes you want to strangle them and you can't Mm. well that panel does come right after beast boy says something so there might be something to your theory yeah so i can't tell if he's doing that or if he's just kind of creeping on jade it is a weird panel because he does have that expression but that is maybe one of the layout choices that works a little bit less well is that there is a panel that is inset over one of jade's breasts but it makes it look like her other breast is like trying to look around the corner (laughs) yeah i wrote it down as sneaky boob peeking around the corner of a panel oh that's funny i had side eye boob (laughs) (laughs) but yes your point stands it's a nice headband any other fashion Uh, i gotta say i really liked mr bones outfit it has two crossed bones I guess he himself is the skull for the skull and crossbones, completing the Jolly Roger look for himself. And he has a giant, giant collar, Uh, reminiscent, I think, of the one worn by Dead Man, who is another character who looks kind of skull-like, depending on his depiction. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good look. Yeah, I think it's clever, too, if you have a skull for a head to have the rest of the Jolly Roger flag as your chest logo so that it's kind of like you're peeking over one of those uh, cardboard cutouts at the state fair. Of? Like where you put your head through a thing so it looks like you, so you complete the image. Oh, of a pirate flag, the Jolly Roger at the fair. Got it. Yeah, we've all taken our pictures there, right? Sure. At the pirate state fair. 
Mm-hmm. And the last one I took was, uh, you know, the one with the cows at the, the Tillamook Creamery in Tillamook, Oregon? Oh, you, so you, you had your head instead of a cow's head? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I took one of those at a tulip festival uh, where... <laughs> As I said, I am apparently going at this midlife crisis <laughs> ass backwards. But yeah, a couple of years ago, I attended a tulip festival and had my head taken as a little Dutch boy. So, pretty good. Oh, what a treat. Well, Corey, now that we've established that we're a couple of badasses who are all about that rock and roll lifestyle... Let's do our weekly battle of the band names. In last week's contest, last week's contest saw us crowning a new champion as College Radio Darling's Phantom Threshold finally defeated those lo-fi Canadian indie rockers, Province of Science. So this week we will be pitting our band name against Phantom Threshold. Who did you find that you want to put up against these college radio sweethearts? Well, as usual, I found some good choices that all turned out to be actual band names. Can I guess one of them? Sure. Flotsam and Jetsam? No. Oh, because, yeah, that was one that I almost picked before I found out that that was a real band already. Yeah, I remember that name. No, these other ones I I had missed. Um, One of them was a spelling difference, so I was kind of tempted to take Infinity Inc. I-N-C, but Mm. Infinity Inc. I-N-K, who makes electronic music in London, I'm going to let them be. Okay. As with Son of Kong, the Heavy Artillery, and uh, Behemoth, all taken. Wow. Which left me with one choice, because I'm not going to take the one that you wrote down when we were talking earlier. Which was this sentient assemblage. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. I found a bunch in here, but that was not one of them. As I mentioned, great gobs of jive. (laughs) I don't think that's necessarily a choice that I'm... I don't think anybody wants to hear that. (laughs) No, probably not. They're probably doo-wop covers of old school rap, and, and I can do without that. But what I did have was... A Billion Billion Somethings. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty solid band name. Happy Little Frog Children, which I gotta believe is the name of a, a pretty good jam band. Uh-huh. And the Star Spawned Somethings was another one that I had. Mm. And actually one more, Living Flotsam. Mm. Any of those uh, tickling your fancy bone? I don't know. I, I, so we're up against... The Phantom Threshold. The Phantom Threshold. Remind me their sonic stylings? Unlike Province of Science, who are Canadian lo-fi indie rock, I believe the Phantom Threshold is uh, college radio American indie rock. I think they're probably a little bit like Archers of Loaf, kind of. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. I think the Sentient Assemblage is probably, again, I know it keeps coming up, but it's just because the names are so long, like in that sort of post-rock vein. Mm -hmm. I like Sentient Assemblage. That is pretty good. I was thinking they're like a, they have a lot of members that play a lot of different instruments, you know? Right. I can totally see that. 
What what about yours? What's your front runner? From, from oh, gosh, of mine, I think probably a billion billion somethings. Because it reminds me of Deep Blue something, but then also of Carl Sagan. <laughs> Worst front man ever. I don't know, man. There was something to him. He was pretty charismatic in that turtleneck. So maybe they are a band where they all wear turtlenecks. And uh, I think they're like a slightly post-grunge alternative rock band where they all dress like Carl Sagan. You're not telling me. Really? Are you not a Carl Sagan fan? No, it's just that you lost me at the post-grunge thing. I, I guess this is more about the names, though. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I'm I'm okay either way. We can go with a billion billion somethings or uh, this sentient assemblage. This sentient assemblage. What's your description of them? So they probably mostly cover show tunes, but they, they do it in a kind of a post-rock yet symphonic manner. Like just guitar heavy lots of layers what would an example of a post-rock band be uh mogwai russian circles okay okay let's go with uh this sentient assemblage i don't know how they're what show tunes they're gonna pick but uh probably sondheim if they're post-rock <laughs> all right so we will see how this sentient assemblage does against the new champions the Phantom Threshold. This was a difficult question for me this week, but who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans? Yeah, this one was really tough. There were so many characters doing so many things or not doing so many things. Right, and really, the only Titan who did much, it seemed like, was Raven. And she did some things really well, but also she was just really weird and super judgy, it felt like, with Obsidian. And so I had her as a nominee for both categories, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did figure prominently in the story. I just really went with, like, okay, I'm going to simplify this down a lot. And who rallied the team and took charge and ostensibly made things happen and so on the very last page we have starfire being like hey everybody quit fucking around <laughs> let's go do some shit and then they all take off so i chose starfire as your best okay i decided to go with raven as my best despite my misgivings because she had by far the most screen time and she did save a pregnant lady and obsidian so despite my misgivings about her I did go with Raven as my best. For my worst, this was a difficult decision for me. We had Beast Boy being creepy, as he often is, and so he was definitely in contention for the way that he was hitting on Jade, and also he said something along the lines of, they should have had time to get dressed, but let's go in anyway. Just like, yeah, man, I know you're a creep, but these people are strangers. Don't be creepy with them. Wait a while. Also, his fighting choices, like he's fighting a, a giant, strong, smart gorilla man. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm just going to be a bird and flap around your head. Like, why not be a giant, strong, opposing gorilla man? Yeah. Send a giant, strong gorilla man to catch a giant, strong gorilla man, as the saying goes. 
I also had Starfire as a potential choice for suggesting that Beast Boy lead their guests on the tour. That's not a good move as a host. It is not, but it's also funny because it's like, you don't want to be around Beast Boy, you don't want to be around guests. There you go. But pawning Beast Boy off on other people because you don't want to deal with him. Hardly heroic. I also had Donna as a potential just for her being like, I thought there were more of you. Oh, that's right. One of you died. So for that on-brand but still pretty insensitive grief counseling technique, I had her as a choice. Ultimately, I decided to go with Beast Boy for his creepiness, but it was a uh, it was touch and go there. Yeah, I had a, a runoff also, and uh, Beast Boy actually cinched it for himself, as usual. But his competition was Dick for, you know, although I do enjoy quietly drinking a beer while fishing, it's not a good way to deal with the complex dynamic that you have created, you know, between your Starfire and uh, your Raven. So he should have been there to deal with it and be with the team. Hmm. But, you know, maybe this is his way of trying to figure that out, and he'll come back and do that later, so I add Beast Boy. When in doubt, I think it's usually a solid decision to go with Beast Boy. Yeah, he didn't do anything redeeming. He certainly didn't. Who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Oh man, Ultra Humanite, he strikes all the poses. He does strike a lot of poses, yeah. That big bowl of space cluster cereal isn't the only thing he's eating. He is also chewing up the scenery in this issue. (laughs) He really makes a meal out of his dialogue and poses so dramatically all the time. I think that's a really solid choice. I actually went with Mr. Bones Hmm. because, okay, so he has see-through skin and organs. He is cosplaying as a pirate flag, and he decided, you know what? That's still not drawing enough attention to myself. Uh, I'm going to speak in rhyme. Like, he is trying so hard to find a hook for himself. Maybe he's trying to distract from being all skull, but it it seems like if that was the case, he would pick a different outfit. So it just comes across that he's trying to pile on all of the quirks and affectations he can in a way that I gotta believe is just exhausting to be around. And that kind of behavior earns him his status as president of the drama club. That's fair. You know, he's not speaking in a ersatz uh, British accent doing Monty Python quotes, but... Yeah, but he may as well be. Yeah. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah. I went with, the, I guess, the obvious one, which was the space shuttle being so prominent. It's very recognizable, very 80s. Yeah, so this would have been like the year after the Challenger explosion, and it is a very recognizable NASA space shuttle as being from that era. Mm -hmm. I think that's a solid call. I had, in one of the scenes when the ultra-humanite and his space serial are all Godzilla'd up, and they are stomping through Manhattan, there is a panel where we see the electronics district, I guess? But you see a a Burger King billboard, and then right next to it is a giant billboard advertising electronic office typewriters. (laughs) 
And there is under it the logo for Brother, who was at the time probably best known for manufacturing electronic typewriters and word processors. I actually had a Brother electronic typewriter. I think around like 2004, 2005, uh, that for a while I tried to do all of my writing on. In my defense, I did not ever bring it to bars with me, like some people I know who did. (laughs) But as of 2005, you still could buy ribbons for electronic typewriters, but they were well past their heyday at that point. And yeah, seeing that billboard for brother electronic typewriters, I thought was a pretty direct timestamp for a pretty specific era. Yeah, man, that is that is a good one. And that same panel, the theater is playing Mad Max 4. Mm-hmm. Starring Mel Gibson, who we didn't know was a piece of shit yet. No, no. Yeah, my mom had one of those brother electric typewriters with this like little window where you could proof the line of text before you hit a button and it would type it. Mm-hmm. But it could only fit like, I don't know, 10 or 20 letters or something. <laughs> It was the most frustrating experience I've ever had trying to write something. It was such a weird mix of high and low tech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the reason I was using it at the time, or the reason that I justified my using it for my writing, which, I mean, honestly, the real reason was I wanted to be special and different. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the reason that I gave to myself was, and there was some truth to this, At the time, I was still adjusting to writing on a computer instead of longhand. And when I was writing on a computer, I would get so in my head knowing that I could go back and change any sentence that I would get stuck on a single sentence and wouldn't move on. And also, because I would go through that, I wouldn't do actual second drafts of things. Because I was like, well, I kind of wrote the second draft as I was writing the first draft because I agonized over every sentence as I was writing it. And typing out my first draft in a physical medium made it be that I had to go back and do a second draft on the computer. Really, so much of my creative process was and is tricking myself Tom Sawyer style into actually doing work. And uh, luckily, I am easily pranked. Mm. Mm. But Mostly, yeah, I wanted to be special and different, and now I just write on a computer like everybody else, which makes way more sense. Well, I guess the upside is when you bring your computer to the bar or the coffee shop, you don't (laughs) look like an asshole. No, I can take care of that on my own, thank you very much. (laughs) Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? Well, with Wildcat's potentially poorly constructed Spanish dialogue, I did find it interesting when uh, Jade takes Beast Boy down a notch by saying that maybe one of the reasons he's green is that he's not ripe yet. Um, Like, if you translate that to Spanish, the word for ripe is the same word for mature. Ooh. So she's just saying he's really immature. So I, I liked that zinger. Don't make too much out of the fact that we're both green changeling. In your case, that could just mean that you're not ripe yet, you know? And she says that while her boob is looking around the corner of the next panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my choice, too. There was, I think, 
some minor wordplay that uh, Beast Boy had calling Cyborg immature because he used the phrase eat white sound. Exactly. And after Vic says that to the ultra humanite, Beast Boy says eat white sound and Vic calls me juvenile. Yeah, he does call you juvenile. It's a fine thing to say. Not making fun of him. That's why you'll never make it into the bozone on the giving end, not the receiving end. Beast Boy. I liked it when uh, Ultra Humanite called one of the Titans an impudent young fool. Yeah, it's pretty good. You know, solidifies his villainous bona fides there. Mm-hmm. Making liberal use of the F word. Any others? Uh, Harry Creep. Pretty good. Yeah, not bad. But yeah, for for me, really, uh, Jade's put down of Beast Boy takes the cake. It was the best. What was your favorite panel? Gosh, we talked about it already, but the level of detail, especially with the mechanical stuff and the technology, was amazing. And the panel on page five that shows all of the uh, the machinery overhead in Titan's Tower when the two teams are meeting each other. It's really nicely done. And yeah, so you get the two teams socializing together in the foreground, and then the background is just a ton of intricate mechanical doodads and computer technology. And that is the panel more than any other that was like, ah, welcome back, Romeo Tangal. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that one as well. The other one that I really liked is one that I think came up in terms of the dialogue earlier, but the triptych of images of the old, bald scientist ultra-humanite, the young, beautiful movie starlet ultra-humanite, and the mutant ape ultra-humanite, the triptych of those images, all three of them are covered with their space serial, and the space shuttle is blasting through those and the words they share this being's memories as man as woman as mutant ape that caption is written on the chemtrail from the space shuttle and it's just really cleverly done yeah i agree it's almost like the space shuttle is one of those planes with the thing that's got the writing on it trailing behind it the banner yeah totally Man, imagine how expensive it would be to hire a space shuttle to do that. Well, yeah, because then you'd need a telescope and all this <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, you would have a smaller audience that it would reach, certainly, but a very dedicated audience, I think. Yeah, I don't get it. It's like one of that's like that new thing of like buying a GIF or like some other, you know, like. I cannot even wrap my mind around how that shit works. It's just people misbragging rights. It's just nonsense. Yeah. Might as well buy a space shuttle banner. I mean, I can think of worse ways to advertise your new space cereal. (laughs) Cosmic clusters. I'm just saying, okay, every, yes, not a ton of people would see that, but it's a targeted demographic of space enthusiasts that you're going to be reaching directly. And uh, I don't know, man. I think you're going to move some product that way. Oh, my God. It's a good thing you're not in charge of marketing this podcast. I'm not? That (laughs) is good news. (laughs) I do have one more panel. And this is my favorite panel. 
and this is page 10, and it is the Ultra Humanite partying down so fucking hard. He is in the middle of the dance floor. He's got both of his arms, hands and fists raised over his head, and it just looks like he is dancing so hard, and there's little disco lights flashing all around him. Oh man, that is a... I, I missed that. That is a great party image. It's the most joyful thing in this whole comic book. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know if it's dubstep or like some old Jamiroquai or what it is, but he is in the club really enjoying himself. I think that he is probably, just given his posture and really the whole disco vibe of that panel, I'm going to say it's You Make Me Feel Like Dancing by Leo Sayer. Oh, that's fair. Listen to Jade, Golden Girl, which is, like the song says, a cute way of talking. You've got a cute way of talking. Yeah, that is a very fun image. Good call, Corey. Thank you. You also do have a couple of pages later, the page where he's using his crazy new nonsense abilities to make everyone instantly unconscious, where he has a target forming around him and the nuclear atom symbol coming out of him. And from that atom symbol, pink lightning is shooting at all of the Titans and Infinitors. That's also a pretty good panel, but he doesn't look as happy. You're right. Mm Mm-mm. No, no, it's it's lost the disco vibes and gone right to, like, some really dark metal. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord 1989 and the month of our Lord February, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! So, in these segments, we often talk about all the positive things that Aqualad and Beaky have done for the world or for humanity. But at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge he's, he's not just such a, not a one-dimensional character. He's got mm-hmm. his flaws, like the rest of us. And some of those manifested in um, February of 1989. So the vet who was taking care of Beaky, as listeners may recall, has you know had some health issues over the last couple issues, suggested strangely, him being an aquatic bird and everything, that he needed a a warm, dry climate to convalesce and to to get better. Huh. That sounds like a bad veterinarian, Corey. It might just, it might have been a bad vet. It (laughs) certainly didn't have a great outcome. So Aqualad was like, okay, I'm a little bit freaked out by this, but let's go to the Southwest. (laughs) You know, packed up plenty of snacks, plenty of water, and uh, headed to Arizona. And well, there, you know, they're going a little store crazy, got a little bored, decided to catch a basketball game phoenix suns are playing Ooh. and uh he's got his uh little pre-game party started at home you know went actually a little bit okay a lot overboard and also then realized when he got to the game that you know he can't bring pets in and uh, drinks or snacks or any of that so went back out to the car got his trench coat Stuffed Beaky in there, stuffed his, his big old bag of uh, cheddar cheese goldfish snacks, and uh, for some inexplicable reason, the uh, remaining half bottle of Golschlager that he had been drinking. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he uh, picked that up when he was at his internship in CERN. I think it's a Swiss liquor. But anyway, I uh, got into the game, and things had started. It was about halfway through, and uh, he's like, okay, now it's probably safe for me to let Beaky out. So open opened up his trench coat, took out the bird, put him in the seat. 
and realized that Beaky, while hiding in his trench coat, had eaten every single last one of those cheddar cheese goldfish. Oh, no. And also emptied the remaining bottle of the Goldschlager. Oh, he's going to have those little gold flecks all over his beak. Yeah, Gross. yeah, all over the jacket, over the just everything. Looked like a glitter bomb went off, which really, you know, Aqualad uncharacteristically flew into a rage. Oh. And Beaky made a break for it. He's like, fuck this, I'm out. Took off. And that slapstick hijinks between Bird and Super Teen <laughs> that followed was hilarious. But it also startled a Kevin Johnson of the Phoenix Suns at the free throw line, causing Ooh. him to miss and break his 57 shot long streak of free throw shots. So that was the impact that uh, oh. Aqualad had in uh, February of 1989. Poor future mayor of Sacramento, Kevin Johnson. Yeah, I guess it did give him pause to think about what else he might do with his career. But <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess that seeing a handsome young C-strengthened disco ball like that can have a pretty significant effect. But he still had a lot of good years in Phoenix ahead of him. I mean, that that team was fun to watch, the 89 Suns. That would have been Kevin Johnson pretty young, and uh, I think Tom Chambers was still playing for them then. But it would be years before they would get uh, Barkley and uh, really take off as a franchise. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the silver lining. The Phoenix Suns can thank Aqualad for Barkley eventually showing up. <laughs> Barkley and Dan Marley. Oh, man. They had Danny Ainge coming off of the bench. What a fun team. Danny Ainge played for the Suns? Yeah, that was after he was in Portland. And he actually uh, ended up coaching the Suns briefly. Oh, in shit. his first run as head coach, yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. That may have been one thing that Aqualad and Beaky were up to, but it wasn't the only thing. Nor was it the only sports-related activity that they were up to in February of 1989. Or was it? What? See. Aqualad, as I believe has come up, was a bit of a fan of professional wrestling. And in February of 1989, a certain storyline was taking place within the WWF called The Mega Powers. And that was a team-up between Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage. They had formed a tag team, they were fighting the Big Boss Man and a large white man who was calling himself Akeem the African Dream and dancing very badly? Oh. Yeah. But Aqualad was thoroughly invested in this storyline with Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage teaming up. He was a big Mega Powers fan. Unfortunately, on February 3rd, this storyline started coming to a head with the disillusion of the Mega Powers. Uh, there was an incident during a match where Randy Macho Man Savage turned on Hulk Hogan, who he believed was making eyes at Miss Elizabeth, and oh, no. he hit him with the, his championship belt. And Aqualad was just devastated by this. He didn't yet know that, like Mel Gibson, Hulk Hogan was a real piece of shit. <laughs> so... He really wanted the Mega Powers to get back together. And he started calling the WWF headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut, and just keeping calling them and saying, Look, you need to let me sit down with Randall Savage and Hulk Hogan. 
and let me try to work things out with them. I, I am offering you my mediation services. And when he didn't hear back from them, he started just showing up in person and trying to get one of his C-strengthened feet in the door so that he could just sit down with them and get them to work things out. And, you know, the wrestlers who are showing up for work in Connecticut, are they're so distracted by this. They're starstruck by a young Aqualad showing up, and they're not getting their workout routines in. And so that is why on February 10th, the WWF decided to file with the state of New Jersey to be reclassified not as a sport, but as entertainment. For the first time, they officially, legally broke KFAB and acknowledged in a court of law that their outcomes were predetermined. Wow. I mean, maybe a minor reason also why they did that was so that they would not be regulated the way that sports were. And, you know, they wouldn't be subject to drug testing, say, uh, or <laughs> testing for steroids when they went to different states. But I think probably, mostly, it was because Aqualad's presence was too distracting for them. Did they test, did they test for cocaine? Judging from some of the promos that I've seen from that era, they absolutely did not test for cocaine. I was going to say, that seems highly unlikely. But yeah, they wanted to avoid testing for anything and not be subject to the same regulations that sporting events were. So yeah, that was the first time a pro wrestling organization publicly and legally acknowledged that their outcomes were predetermined. Hmm. And it was all because of Aqualad. Wow. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in February of 1989. Nice. Well, Corey, thank you for joining me and talking about this comic book. You're welcome. We will be back next week to talk about a Defenders comic book. And in two weeks, we will see the conclusion of this cluster serial saga in the pages of Infinity Inc. number 45. So I'm looking forward to seeing how things wrap up with that. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or we can be reached via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We can also be reached on social mediums. A social medium like a fortune teller that likes to hang out. Yeah, like a finally, a fortune teller who loves to party. Yeah, uh, we can be reached via those. Just talk to your social medium and say, I want to contact Tighten Up the Defense. And uh, she'll hold a seance for us, and we won't show up there because we're not dead. But then probably she'll be like, well, let me check if they're on Facebook and Twitter and shit like that. And we are. So good job, social medium. <laughs> you cracked the case. If you can't get in touch with us that way, well, there's one other place you can try. And that's looking deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. What are you going to be getting up to inside people's hearts this week, Corey? Um, making a pizza. Yeah, I've been making some pan pizzas lately. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they're pretty good. Mm. You put the olive oil right in the cast iron pan there, and it, uh, it greases up real nice. Tastes just like a Pizza Hut pan pizza, in that as you are eating it, you are like, oh, I can feel this clogging my arteries. Delicious. Mm. Mm. Classic. So yeah, heck, maybe I'll make a pizza in there too. 
Only problem is we do have to get the oven in your heart up to 550 degrees. So I hope your heart is well ventilated. Wait, we've been over the nope. heart ventilation. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just eat the pizza cold. Yeah. Just hanging out in your heart, eating cold pan eating pizza. cold, uncooked pan pizza. Just dough and sauce. Just to be considerate. Delicious. God, do you remember when they did those, like, uh, I don't think I ever had one, but you know those those Oscar Mayer Lunchables? Mm-hmm. You know they had the pizza ones? Those mm-hmm. always looked disgusting to me. Like, can you imagine eating pizza with unmelted cheese? And, like, raw pepperoni? Well, that does not sound good, no. Mm-mm. What did they do for the tomato component? Well, I think they just had tomato sauce. Like in a packet? Yeah, I think you would get, like, a packet of tomato sauce and, like, a cracker and some unmelted mozzarella cheese and a piece of raw pepperoni. I must be misremembering that, because that sounds disgusting. I don't know. No, I can see a kid, like, trying to will that <laughs> into oh. being good. Man, kids are dumb. Well, I mean, not all kids. (laughs) (laughs) My niece Molly and my nephew Jacob have a cooking show that they're doing. That's what I'm going to be up to in your heart. I'm going to be watching uh, Molly's Cozy Kitchen on YouTube, my niece's new uh, cooking show that she does. Oh, man, me too. That is a delight. It really is. Yeah, you can learn how to make home Or spinach muffins. Uh Uh-huh. So. That, yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm not going to be eating this fucking Lunchable pizza. That sounds disgusting. Yeah, no, I just, mine is just a regular cold pizza out of the box. Oh, okay. You said you were going to be making it, though. Well, that, that was before you told me we were going to burn the listener's heart down. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, me either. Good call. Thanks. If you would like to set my heart ablaze, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon. <laughs> That's at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff up there. There are video reviews of classic comic books and some bonus podcasts that I've done with Corey and other friends including one that I did with my aforementioned niece and nephew, where they watched the first episode of the, I believe, 2004 Teen Titans cartoon. So you can check that stuff out there if you make a donation. Uh, It's a great way to let us know that you care about the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you for that. Another way you can support the show, non-monetarily, would be to uh, leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. What would be an example of a place a review can be left, Corey? You could probably most easily leave a review on the platform which you're listening to the show. You think that would be easier than hiring a space shuttle to carry a banner behind it that says, Tighten up the defense? Oof. It's been a while since I've been in the hiring space shuttles market, but I'm assuming yes, because you wouldn't have to call anybody. Mm. That seems like the kind of thing you'd have to make calls to arrange. That's right. You are able to support the show by leaving us a review in a place where a review can be left without leaving your own home and without having to talk to anyone on the telephone. Mm -hmm. Ever. What a world we live in. Yep. Congratulations.
Have you ever seen the movie The Net with Sandra Bullock? Um, yes, but uh, I don't remember it. I know I, I, it sounds very familiar, though. I'm pretty sure I saw it. I saw it pretty recently and honestly held up better than I expected, with the exception of a couple of very dated things that happened in the movie. One, it took place during a time when they were briefly thinking maybe Dennis Miller was a person who could act in movies. And <laughs> he, he really was not. And <sighs> there is an opening scene where she orders a pizza on a website. And the movie is just like, you can kind of hear it standing back and being like, huh? Huh? How about this? Welcome to the future. Mm. Well, thanks for listening. And. Until next week, uh, no one, nothing on this planet can stop me from performing my sacred mission, even if, even if I cannot quite remember what it is. So true. See you next week. Bye. Uh. And they know it. Okay, let's get this started. Okay, that sounds good. I don't know why my <laughs> voice did that. Oh, maybe I'll sound like Tom Waits finally. I mean, that's the dream. You've been gargling your glass every day, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I quit smoking, so I had to, you know, <laughs> do something. <laughs>